decided to extend our series for about a week. I was going to wrap it up this morning and talk to you all about humility, and uh, we're going to save that for next week. I decided I'm going to uh, extend this one week, and we're going to talk today about a character trait of God that is really critical for you and I understanding His grace. And then next week, we're going to talk about a character trait of us that's also very important for us to experience and understand His grace. So this week, a character trait of God. Next week, a character trait of us. As you'll see, combining them together will allow you to experience His grace in a profound way. Um, I had somebody say to me this week, I kind of smiled at it. They said, you know, um, there's been a great series on the grace of God, Jamie. And I was wondering, you know, how you were going to talk about grace and God for five weeks. And, and I started laughing to myself, and I thought, five weeks? I thought, I, thought I, I could talk about this for ten years. And, and, and we'd only start to scratch the surface uh, of His grace. Uh, the book we're having many of you read, and about over 2,000 of you bought the book, and I'm glad you did, by Andy Stanley called The Grace of God. One of the reasons we chose that book is because it chronicles God's grace from Genesis all the way up through Revelation. And again, I don't think this would be offensive to Andy Stanley if I was to say that in that book, he's just scratching the surface uh, to the idea of God's grace, even as he's trying to give us an overview of his grace from Genesis to Revelation. And so really, I feel like I'm glad this series has gone well, but I feel like even just six weeks now that we're starting to look at God's grace, that we're just beginning. We're just starting what I hope will be a very long journey for us as a church that becomes more fixated and focused on His grace to us. (coughs) I've been battling a cold all week, and uh, so let's pray now, and let's pray that God gives me strength and grace to get through our time together. Father... I thank you for your goodness to us. That's what we're going to explore here this morning, your goodness and your grace and how the two of them are tied together. And so I pray, God, that as we do that, as we open your book and uh, look at this theme of your goodness throughout it, that, God, you would give us wisdom and insight, clarity. I pray, God, that as I um, am battling and getting over this cold, I pray, God, that you give me strength and health uh, to share with these dear people your word. Thank you for our worship, God, the set-up time that we've had to focus our mind and heart on you, and uh, we look forward to what you're going to say to us now in Christ's name. Amen. (coughs) All right, let me get it out. (coughs) Good. I'll get it out this service. I'll be great for the second and third service, all right? And then I'm going to collapse in front of the Super Bowl and watch Green Bay win. All right, now, folks, sometimes in life, the most simple things can be the most profound. We've all found that. That though life can be very complicated, sometimes the most simple things can be the most profound. So for instance, the phrase, I love you. I mean, really, it's a simple phrase when you think about it. It's only three words. It's not all that hard to say. And yet we've all learned that those three words can be extremely profound when they're said in the right way to the right person at the right time. Or how about an Arizona sunset? Have you ever looked at one of those? I mean, I love trying to explain an Arizona sunset to people back from the Midwest because their mindset is it's just a sunset. You've seen one, you've seen them all. But you and I know better. There's something very profound that you just stare at for hours with an Arizona sunset. Or how about fishing for some of you? I mean, it's just a line and a hook. Or collector cars for others of you. They're just metal and paint. Or how about a piece of art for even others of you? It's just colors on a canvas. I mean, think about it. Sometimes the most simple things in life touch things in us in such a way that we say, whoa, is that ever profound? We've all learned that the most simple things can actually be the most profound. And what you need to know this morning is that it's no less true when it comes 
to our understanding of God. That though theology, the study of God, can certainly be a complex and intricate endeavor, like when we study the Trinity or the hypostatic union of Christ or things like that, but there's other times, however, where some of the most simple things of God can actually be the most profound. And so today and next week as we wrap up this first series on grace in our Embrace Grace campaign, I want to look at two relatively simple character traits, one that is God's and one that is ours, and how these relatively simple character traits actually become profound pathways toward knowing and experiencing God. That's what I need you to see over the next couple of weeks, that there's one very simple truism about God, and then another very simple truism of how God wants us to be that we're going to look at next week. And when you bring the two together in kind of like a a catalyst way, it helps us to experience His grace on a very profound level. And so with this said, I want to dive right in and set up our topic for today, this idea of God's goodness. And we begin with a very clear and poignant passage from the Psalms, written almost 3,000 years ago, and yet as relevant today as it ever was. Look at Psalm 34, verse 8. If you brought a Bible, open it there today. We're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures today as we unpack God's goodness, but open to Psalm 34, 8, because this is our theme passage for this morning. And look up here on the screen. It's a simple passage, really. I prepared you for this, but look at what it says. It says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I love that. Taste it and see it. Recognize it. Open your eyes to it. See it for all that it is. And then don't just stop there. Taste it. Experience it. Try it out. Savor it for a while on your spiritual palate. And then ingest it fully into your life and being. And what is it that you and I are supposed to taste and see? Don't miss this. The goodness of God the goodness of God, the reality that He is always good, that there is nothing either in Him or that could ever come from Him that is contrary to His ultimate goodness and the fact that He is right and decent. And so here's how Bible experts for years now have added up and understood the literally hundreds of passages in the Bible that speak to this idea of God's goodness and what it means. Again, for those of you who like a definition type of message where I clearly define our terms before we go any further, you're going to like this. Here's a good working definition of God's goodness, and it's this. God's goodness is the combination of His love, generosity, grace, and kindness. That's the best stab I can give you at the literally hundreds of passages in the Bible that when you combine them all, give us a definition of God's goodness. That it's the combination of understanding His love, His generosity, His grace, and His kindness. So so when you consider, folks, the fact that God loves this world, that He is generous and kind in making this world and even keeping it going considering what a mess we've made of it, and that He even shows us His grace, which is love and kindness when we don't deserve it, then it clearly adds up to a living picture of how good God really is. And so could this be what Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9 is getting at when it says this? Look up here on the screen. It says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Here it is. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. So gracious, merciful, generous, and not getting too angry too fast at all of our sin and mistakes, and then abounding in steadfast love. And what does that equal? 
the fact that God is good. He is good. And so I love how the famous author and preacher A.W. Tozer said in his very classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy. Look up here on the screen. He says, The goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. He is tender-hearted and quick of sympathy, and his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. That's God's goodness. The fact that he is kind and gracious and gentle and loving toward those that he has made, meaning us. And so I ask you this morning, before we go any further, did you know that about God? Did you? I mean, some of you here today have a very different view of God. We tend to see God maybe based on our experience of our own earthly fathers. And so maybe your father was grouchy, stern, maybe even absent, maybe even abusive. Uh, Maybe your father was always mad and disappointed in you. And so we tend to see God that way. It's just natural. J.B. Phillips in his classic book, Your God is Too Small, says that one of the reasons that some of us have a view of God that is very small is because we have yet to outgrow the view of our human father. And so if you see your human father as not a very good and kind person, then you translate that to God, look out. All of a sudden now your experience of him is going to be nowhere near how he wants you to experience him. Or maybe some of you had a father who was kind of a a killjoy, who never smiled, whose heart was never touched by human suffering, who simply kind of ruled the family with an iron fist. And so you tend to see God that way. Folks, don't be misled. Contrary (coughs) to what you might have heard or thought, God's goodness means that he is both giving and forgiving when it comes to his approach to us and this world. As we're going to see, he has given us this world, each other, and even all of our blessings, material and otherwise. And then in an ultimate act of goodness, he has even given us himself by providing Christ who has brought forgiveness for our sins. You didn't lace this with anything, did you? All right, cool. This will help. Thanks. My wife, who's here at the service, actually asked me right before I got up to preach, she said, do you need water? And what did I say as the typical man? I said, no, I'm fine. Leave me alone, woman. And this is just God's way of getting back at me. So, Kim, I know you probably prayed for that. So, you know. And so my point is, is that it's a paradigm shift for some of us here today. That no matter how you slice it, God is good. And it's expressed in his love and his generosity and his kindness and his grace toward us. Now, believe it or not, with this definition, we're just scratching the surface here. We're still really, if you can picture it, in the shallow end of the pool of understanding how and why God is so good. And so what I want to do right now is give you two theological truths. For those of you who are more theological in nature, which all of us should be, you're going to like this next section. I want to give you two theological truths that are also eminently practical and helping us understand even more deeply God's goodness. And so here's the first thing that you need to know that will get you swimming in the deep end of understanding his goodness, and it's simply this, and that is that God's goodness is rooted in his nature and it flows from it. This might be the only thing some of you need to hear this morning, that God's goodness is rooted in his nature and his goodness actually flows from his nature. 
And so look at what a passage tucked away in the longest chapter of all of the Bible, Psalm 119, says about God's goodness. Look at Psalm 119, verse 68. It says, you, meaning God, are good and do good. Pause right there. You, God, are good and you do good. And so get this, folks. God's goodness is both core to his nature. In other words, he is good through and through. And because of this, anything he does is good because it is always consistent with his nature. So God just doesn't act good like some schoolboy trying to please his teacher, but who really knows he put a frog in his teacher's drawer. No, God's not like that at all. God acts good because he is good. God's goodness is core to his nature. It's who he is. And so only from his nature flow good things. Uh, Thomas Manton was a great Puritan preacher back in England in the 1600s when, by the way, life was not as kind and gentle as it is today. And in commenting on this aspect of God's goodness, look at what he says. This is rich. Look up here on the screen. He says, and I quote, he, God, is originally good, good of himself. He is essentially good, not only good, but goodness itself. He is eternally and immutably good, for he cannot be less good than he is. And so I add this up, folks. God in himself, in his being, defines goodness. He can be no other because his nature, in his nature, he is good. This is what A.W. Pink, one of the great theologians of the last century, calls an underived goodness. The fact that it can only be said of God that he has an underived goodness goodness. Look at what he says. He says, he, God, was eternally good before there was any communication of his bounty or any creature to whom it might be imparted. And so for God, there's no external influence on his goodness like there is for you and me. We're good because of pressure to be good and we're taught to be good and all the other things that help us be good. But for God, that's not the case. He is good because in his nature, with no external influence on him at all, he is good. And out of his goodness, then, flows good things. And so think about it, folks. The reason this is so practical is that in a world in which image is everything, in which what is portrayed on the outside is not always what you get on the inside, where what you see is not always what you get, in which it is hard to know if what somebody presents on the outside is what is really true about them on the inside. In a world like that that you and I live in, God comes along and he says, with me, what you see is what you get that I am good in and of myself, and so what flows from me is 100% compatible with my good nature. And so God is not like so many people around you in which they tell you that they're good or they try to portray that they're good, but inside you sense that that's not the case. Inside you sense that they're not quite as good as they think they are or as they portray themselves to be. God is not like so many people we know, even ourselves at times, that what is presented on the outside may not be really what is going on on the inside. When God does good, and we're going to see some of the good things he does here in a minute, when God does good, it is only and always an outpouring of what is most in him, namely his goodness. And as a quick side note, doesn't this then just fly in the face of what I call our Nike spirituality that is so prevalent in the church today. 
And you know what I'm talking about. The just-do-it spirituality that is more concerned that Christians look good on the outside and are always doing good on the outside, never minding what's really going on on the inside. I mean, we live in an image-focused culture. And we're told to be good as Christians. And yet God comes along, and Jesus taught of this, and He said, no, what flows from the heart is what will make you good. Change the inside first, and then you're going to do good on the outside. And once you start to understand God's goodness, folks, you start to get that. That God in His nature is good. And what flows from this is goodness Himself. And as we're going to see here in just a minute, He wants the same with you and me. He wants our goodness to simply flow from the goodness that He puts in us. Now, before we get to that, however, I want to share with you a second truth that we need to know that gets us more into the deep end of understanding God's goodness And it answers the question of where and how God's goodness is most seen. I mean, the psalmist tells us to taste and see the goodness of God. And so where do we see the goodness of God? I know some of you are thinking that already. And here it is. Look up here on the screen. And that is that God's goodness is most seen in creation, revelation, and redemption. I'm telling you this is core. God's goodness is most seen, if you've ever wondered, in creation, revelation, and redemption. And so consider first how God's goodness is seen simply and powerfully in the fact that He made this world and He made it good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31 is our text here. It says, And God saw everything that He made, and behold, it was very good. He made this world and He made it good, a result of His goodness. And how is it good, you might ask? Well, first, the fact that we as human beings are so wonderfully designed and created is a sign of His goodness. This will be radical for some of you this morning. Look at Psalm 139, verse 14. It says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And so the fact that you and I are intricate, creative, functional, willful, thinking, breathing, feeling creatures is a sign of His goodness to you. It is. So no matter what your problems are today, no matter how discouraging things get, I need you to lift your sights this morning and realize that mere life itself... The fact that you exist and you breathe and are more intricate and wonderfully designed than all other creatures (coughs) is a sign of His goodness to you. I mean, to put it candidly to you folks, you weren't born a cat. You weren't created a worm. You weren't designed as some inanimate object like a stone or a twig. You have life in you. You are conscious and you are creative. And what I need you to see this morning is that that's a sign, that's a living, breathing sign of God's goodness to you. The fact that you are here today, that you are breathing, that you are alive, (coughs) made in His image, is a sign of His goodness. You know, I believe this so strongly that um, I'm very fond of saying that when things happen to me in any given week, like whether it's a, a flu bug like this or if things don't go well at the church, people will often hear me say something to the fact of, well, if this is the worst thing that happens to me this week, I'm really blessed. And, and I say that quite often, that this is the worst thing that happens to me this week, I'm blessed. 
And, and I think I'm going to say that all my life. I mean, I think that, that, that the day I get the, the news of the disease that will probably take my life, whether it's heart attack or cancer or whatever, I, I really believe I'll say, if this is the worst thing that happens to me this week, I'm very blessed. And the reason I can say that, folks, is because of cogent theology, that I believe that God has greatly blessed me in creation, revelation, and redemption. And nothing can take those things away, not even death. Because death just ushers me into a new realm and where I'm redeemed in Christ and I'll be with him forever. So as Paul the Apostle said, to live as Christ, to die is gain. And so I can safely say that no matter what happens to me in any given week, I'm very blessed. And I'm grateful to God for his goodness. And so I got a phone call the other day from a guy here in the church who was deeply struggling in his life with some of his circumstances. And I've been praying with him on each successive Sunday before that uh, for his circumstances. And uh, this particular week that he called me, things had gone just very south. That his circumstances had not gone the way we were praying for and the way that he thought they were. And he was so despairing that day when he called me that he actually said, I just really wonder if this world would be better without me. And, and he has a wife and children. And, and those are serious statements when somebody makes it like that. And, and it was hard for me to put into words for this brother what I was feeling at that moment. That, that he was so tied to his circumstances, and I understood that, and he was so discouraged. But I said, I, I need you to see this morning that this world is, is actually awesome. Your family is awesome. Our church is awesome with you here. Just the fact that you are breathing, that you're made in the image of God, that you've been given gifts by Him, no matter what your circumstances might be, it is a good thing that you are here. And you need to thank God for His goodness that he made you and still has you here. And folks, one of the awesome things about his goodness is that you and I can say that in any given circumstance, at any given time, because of his goodness that flows from his grace. The fact that he has made you in his image, that you are not a dog, that you are not a cat, that you're not a stone, that you're not a twig, that you're not any other thing in creation, but you're a human being made in his image is a sign of his goodness to you. God made you, and he loves you. That's his grace, and it's his goodness. And as if life itself were not enough, most of us know it doesn't even stop there. I mean, God has actually given us blessings in addition to life. And what I need you to see this morning is that that's also a sign of his goodness. Now look at Psalm 103, <coughs> verse 5. It says, Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's who satisfies you with good. The implication here being how the New American Standard Bible and the King James Version of the Bible translates that passage when it says good things. Who satisfies you with good things. And the Bible even lists what those good things are. Everything from food to shelter to clothing. You ever read Matthew 6? To all the other things that God has given you. And so all the tangible blessings that you have, your job, your house, your money, are all a sign of his goodness to you. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 5 verse 19 says this. It says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. And so your money, your car, your house, your vacation, your 401k, all of it, it's no accident that you have what you have or that you don't have what you don't have. They're all a part of what Christians of old used to call the bounty of God. The fact that He is good to us and in differing measure, He blesses us as He sees fit. It's all a sign of His goodness to you. And yet it doesn't even stop here. 
This is just the icing on the cake of his goodness to you, this idea of creation. God has then even blessed us in revealing himself to us and giving us redemption in Christ. Look at Titus 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. I love that. The grace of God, which as we saw earlier in our definition, is simply an outpouring of his goodness. The grace of God has appeared, and this is referring to Jesus here, and the grace of God has given us salvation, which has come in the revelation of Christ. And so folks, the next time that you think you have nothing, the next time where you wonder where God is in your life and what he is up to, don't forget that his goodness to you has never waned. And it never is going to wane. It's all around you. You just need to open up your eyes as we began with looking at the psalm earlier and taste and see His goodness to you. Taste and see the fact that all around you through creation and revelation and redemption that God has been good to you. In short, check this out, folks, because this is so profound. When you really think about it, when you add up all of his goodness to us in creation, revelation, and redemption, what it most boils down to is that the God of the universe, the Almighty One, has shown us his goodness by inviting us into relationship with himself. A relationship that I would argue means more than any material blessing that he could ever give a relationship that you and I need to take advantage of in and through His goodness in creation, revelation, and redemption every day. In other words, don't miss this. You and I can know God intimately and personally through His Word and through His Son, Jesus Christ. And this relationship, the fact that you and I can know Him is a sign of His goodness and it means more than anything else and it's what our souls have longed for ever since the day we came out of the womb. And lest you ever wonder, this is why for thousands of years now, people have sought to understand God in more deeper and more deeper ways. It's why they meet together regularly like we're doing here this morning for worship. It's why people crack the Bible and read it. It's why people pray. It's why they serve. It's why they meditate. It's why they have times of solitude. It's why they love other people. It's why they share their faith. I mean, think of all the disciplines that we do as Christians. They're all for one goal and one goal only, to know Him and enjoy Him forever. That's the goal of the Christian life, to bring glory to God by finding, as John Piper says, our ultimate satisfaction in Him through knowing Him in personal relationship and giving glory to Him through our lives. And folks, once you start to understand that that's why God has given us His goodness, so that we might be drawn to Him, so that we might know Him intimately and personally, you're going to start to get His grace. I said to you at the beginning of this message here that this is really a two-parter where we understand an aspect of God combined next week with an aspect of ourselves and that when you put the two together, it's catalytic. It explodes (coughs) into a deeper meaning and profundity of our Christian life when it comes to grace. And I'm telling you, when you get the goodness of God, the fact that He has been good to you no matter what your circumstances are, the fact that in creation, revelation, and redemption, He is good by His very nature. And then combine it, as we're going to see next week, with His humility, I'm telling you, you will be in a place to experience and know His great grace to you. And it is at this point, and only at this point, that in light of God's goodness, stemming from His nature, 
seen in so many ways in our daily lives that you and I are not you and I are now poised to ask what should our response be to this in other words what action is God looking for as a rejoinder to his obvious and awesome goodness three take-home commitments Three take-home commitments I want to leave with you here this morning. Three things that you can do, for those of you who are very pragmatic, based upon God's obvious goodness <coughs> to you. All right? Here's the first one. And that is that you affirm, each of you, individually every day, that I will thank Him for His goodness to me. I will thank God each and every day for His goodness to me. I'm telling you, this one is so real that if every Christian were to simply wake up every day and no matter what lot in life they might find themselves in, no matter what circumstance they might be facing, just thank God that He is good to them. I'm telling you, we would not have near the amount of people in counseling, near the amount of people discouraged, near the amount of people disillusioned, near the amount of Christians that have no joy that we have today if every Christian would just learn to thank God for His goodness to them. I love how the famous present-day theologian J.I. Packer says it in his classic book, Knowing God. Look up here on the screen. This is rich. He says, appreciate the goodness of God. Count your blessings. Learn not to take natural benefits, endowments, and pleasures for granted. Learn to thank God for them all. You see, folks, this quote here <coughs> catches two subtle nuances of what it means to be thankful to God for His goodness. It catches what I call an offensive posture to God's goodness and a defensive posture to God's goodness. This is Super Bowl Sunday, so you're good for a football analogy here. A, a defense, offensive posture and a defensive posture. And offensively, what Packer's getting at here is that we need to actively remember, we need to be on the offensive in thanking God regularly for both who He is in His goodness as well as for His many expressions of goodness. I mean, just go out of your way every day to simply thank God before a meal, driving down the road, during a quiet moment at work, while watching your kids' sporting events, during a commercial on the TV. I mean, all throughout your day, just thank Him for His goodness to you. At church, during worship, while serving Him with your gifts, at night before you fall asleep. I mean, just anywhere and everywhere, thank Him for His goodness to you. And then realize while you're doing that, there's also a defensive posture when it comes to this idea of thanking God for His goodness. And that is that we need to guard our hearts, now don't miss this, from ever taking God's goodness too lightly or even worse, doubting it. You see, I don't think what most Christians get is how dangerous it is for our spirits to doubt the goodness of God. I don't think we really get that. I mean, we think the greatest sin is, is kind of like, you know, divorce or pornography or stealing or lying or cheating. And, and all those are things we shouldn't do. I mean, the Bible has, has uh, words on all of that. But do you know that one of the greatest sins the Bible actually talks about, gosh, more water. I must sound worse than I feel. Anyways, um, thank you, Scotty. Uh, I, I think that most people don't get that, that one of the greatest sins the Bible actually lists for us is this idea of doubting the goodness of God. Of actually saying to God, and I don't know if I've ever say this, but we feel it, actually looking to God and saying, I doubt who you are in essence. I doubt that you're good. I doubt that you really care for me. I doubt that you're really going to take care of me. And folks, we need to guard our hearts from that. We need to guard our hearts based on difficult circumstances from ever doubting the goodness of God 
And thankfulness carries with it both an offensive and a defensive posture. Both are needed if we're ever going to stay connected to God. So here's what the Scriptures say about this. Look at Psalm 107, verse 1. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and for His steadfast love endures forever. That's offensive. You offensively thank God. You actively thank God for His goodness. But then you apply Romans 2, verse 4 where it says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness, God's kindness, is meant to lead you to repentance? So you guard your heart from ever presuming on the riches of His kindness. You know, folks, I believe this so long and so strong in my life that one of the things that I've kind of beat into my kids, not beat physically, but beat spiritually into my kids over the years is this idea of just being thankful to God. That Kim and I, no matter where we've lived, no matter what size house we've lived in, no matter how much money we have made or not made, no matter what kind of church we were serving, no matter what our circumstances have been, we've always just said to our kids, let's be super thankful for what we have. And so we were that way in Detroit when we were just starting out and had very little. We're that way today as we're now living here in Scottsdale with all of you. And we've always said to our kids, no matter what our lot in life is, Let's just be thankful to God. In fact, I've been more candid with them than that. I've said to them, you know, guys, I, I never thought when I went into ministry that, that I would serve the kind of churches that I've been able to serve. I never thought that God would be so good to me to allow me to serve along with and to the people that he's called us to serve. And though it's certainly not been problem-free or anything like that, I, I, I've said, guys, Kim and I used to dream about the life we have right now. We used to dream about using our gifts and our passions in the way that we use them now. In fact, I've said to my kids, I used to dream about having a wife that would just accept me and love me for who I am. And look at who God has provided today. Do you guys get the picture here? Of just being thankful and grateful for what you have. It will align you with God's goodness. The first response that God looks for in His children in light of His goodness to them is thankfulness and gratefulness. Second take-home commitment is this, and that is that you will taste more of His goodness to you. You make a commitment to taste more of His goodness to us. I like this one a lot. In other words, it goes back to our main passage that we started with today, Psalm 34, verse 8, that says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And one of the things that commentators point out about this passage is that this is not a call to just a one-time tasting. Do we all understand that? It's not like saying just nibble on God's goodness now and then and you'll be a good enough Christian. No, it's saying taste and see that the Lord is good and continue to taste and see. Keep on tasting in increasing measure all of your life because it's a never-ending journey. And so folks, if you're looking for a journey that will give you more joy, more peace, more contentment, more sense of who God is. And I'm telling you, focus on His goodness and taste more of it at each stage of your Christian life. And so let me give you some examples here. If you're a seeker here today who has experienced God's goodness in creation but has yet to experience His goodness in revelation and redemption, in other words, if you're just seeking God but don't really know where you stand with Him, then I encourage you to taste a little bit more of Him. And take the step to receive Jesus Christ into your life as Lord and Savior. I'm telling you, your life will go from black and white to technicolor, as mine did 30 years ago. Or say you're a young believer who has tasted God's goodness and creation and now has had a little taste of His salvation. I'm telling you, taste Him more now in His Word. 
Become a student of his word and taste his goodness to you each and every day by getting more and more of his word. Or say you're somebody who has done that already. You've tasted him in creation. You've tasted him in revelation and redemption. You've tasted him in his word. You're a good Christian analytical type of person. You've been a Scottsdale Bible junkie for 30 years now. You know what I would encourage you to do? Taste him more in worship. You know, one of the things we're not known for as a church is our worship. We have good worship music, don't get me wrong. But I don't think most people look at Scottsdale Bible Church and say, man, I got to tell you, those people know how to give themselves to God in worship. They don't. And I'm not saying that image should matter here. I mean, I don't care about that. But I do sometimes worry and wonder how many of us have really tasted God's goodness to us in the way that we worship. I just wonder that sometimes. I remember years ago, I was leading a Bible study in, in the last church that I was serving with a bunch of men, and we were sitting around talking one day just about our church and all of that, and, and they said, you know, I really don't like our worship leader. I, I mean, he was about my age, and, and, and his name was Stephen. He's a great guy, and, and Stephen had a ponytail, and he was an old rocker, you know, who also was in management of the Nashville Symphony for years, so he could go from Bach to rock, and he was a good mix of what we needed, but he was a guy that had a ponytail. And uh, that bothered some of the guys in our church. And they were saying, you know, I don't know if I like his music, and I don't know if I like the ponytail. And after about five minutes of that discussion, I finally looked at them and I said, stop! I said, stop! Listen to yourselves talk! I said, you're sitting there in church every Sunday when God wants you to give your heart to Him, and you're judging the dude whether he has a ponytail or not. And you're judging him based on the kind of music he is playing. I said, honestly, if God was to zap you right now and die, would you want to tell him that that was your final thought? I said, I don't think you want to do that. I said, I think you want to start to taste and see the goodness of God to get over the ponytail and get over the music choice. They didn't listen to me, but I thought it was a really good speech. (laughs) And I stand by my theology to this day that I think I was right on in the fact that, that many of us tend to think that way. We're in church and we don't like that particular song, so we kind of shut down or we don't like how the music leader looks. I mean, Troy looks great, by the way, so how can you judge that? But anyways, you know, we just tend to be that way. And I sometimes think, my gosh, we're robbing ourselves of tasting His goodness in worship. So maybe the challenge for you this morning is to get over the fact of whether it's your song or not. Amen, Vera? Get over that fact. Get over the fact of whether you like the music or not and give yourself to Him through the words of the song. Give yourself to Him and worship Him. Some of you consumer Christians who always take in through sermons and song and Bible study need to taste more of His goodness through serving. Some of you independent Christians that tend to be kind of you and God only need to taste of His goodness through fellowship and connection. Some of you activist Christians who always taste of His goodness through doing something need to taste of His goodness through silence and Sabbath. You're starting to get the picture. There isn't one of us here this morning who couldn't taste more of the goodness of God in our lives. Uh, Julian of Norwich, a great 14th century mystic, once said this, cleave wisely to the goodness of God. Cleave wisely to the goodness of God. So let me ask you, what are you doing to cleave this morning to God's goodness? I think it's a good question for all of us as we wrap this up. And as we do, here's your third and final take-home commitment to this idea of God's goodness. And that is to have that you say this as well, that I will live out of my new nature that reflects God's goodness. I will live out of my new nature that reflects God's goodness. I kind of gave you a foreshadow to this earlier. That that the fact that because God in His essence is good, the fact that He has also then through Christ put goodness in us 
through the Holy Spirit who lives in us, He calls us now to also be people who do good and are good to those around us. Look at Romans 15, verse 14. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves, now it's just this interesting, is, are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. And then Paul would say it the same way in Ephesians 5, 8, and 9, when he says, you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. The fact that God has saved you and given you Christ and given His Holy Spirit who now lives in you means that there's an aspect of you now in the deepest parts of who you are that is good, that emulates God. And He calls us to be good. And as we're going to see next week, to be humble. And so maybe the next thing for you to taste and see is goodness is to start throwing His goodness around to those around you and seeing how God might use you. I started off this morning by saying that we're going to look at two character traits, one of God's and one of ours. So this week, I want you to chew on God's goodness. I want you to chew on the fact that who He is is what He does, that He is good in nature, and therefore He does good things. I want you to chew on the fact that His goodness is seen in creation and revelation and redemption that all add up to relationship that He calls us to. And then thank Him for His goodness. Commit to tasting more of it and practice it yourself. And as you do that, combined with next week, this idea of humility, that you're going to find that you have primed yourself to experience His grace on a more profound level. We're going to go to the communion table now. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your goodness and for Your grace to us. I thank You, God, that out of Your goodness flows Your grace. And that therefore, Lord, to understand Your grace more, we go to Your goodness. And Father, I pray that out of all the things we've looked at today, it's been a very quick overview of your goodness. I pray, God, that there might be something that each one of us can latch on to that might alter us just a bit when it comes to how we approach and look to you and to your goodness to us. God, I pray that as we go to this communion table now that you might be honored, you might be glorified, and that, Father, you might receive this as an act of worship, which is what it is intended to be, that once again honors your Son, Jesus Christ, and all that he has done for us. We pray this in his holy and precious name. Amen.